You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. It's a holiday edition of Stadium's USA Radio, and we have a few stocking stuffers to pass your way. We'll take some before and after pictures of Chicago's baseball parks, Wrigley Field, and Guaranteed Rate Field, formerly Comiskey Park. Sports personality and talk show host Mike North was a vendor at Wrigley Field in his youth. He'll compare those parks as well as some others. We'll remember the United States Football League, the last effort by an upstart to compete directly with the big four major leagues. Sports editor, historian, and author Paul Reitz talks about his upcoming book on the USFL. Few arenas capture the essence of college basketball better than Philadelphia's famed Palestra. We'll find out why from former Penn Athletic Director Steve Bilski. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran gives a thumbs up on the renovation of the Citrus Bowl, now known as Camping World Stadium. That's coming up on this holiday edition of Stadiums USA Radio. But first, we go to the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, there is nothing new to report from San Diego or Oakland this week regarding stadium news other than the topic is beginning to weigh on some of the players. Chargers coach Mike McCoy says they've talked about the issue in the locker room. Well, I think our players have done an outstanding job of handling all that. You know, we addressed the stadium issue uh, in the offseason, the first day of training camp, like we've said before. and the way they've gone out and played. There's nothing that's been finalized. You know, Dean said he'll make his, you know, he'll make his decision after the season's over. So we're focused on what we need to do, and especially this week um, playing Cleveland. Last weekend, fans attending the Raiders-Chargers game in San Diego talked with the Union Tribune newspaper about the possibility of San Diego losing the team. Do you think this is the last Raiders-Chargers game ever at Qualcomm Stadium? I do. You think they're moving? I definitely think they're moving. Is that sad? Very, very sad. I mean, I'm a San Diego native, uh, fourth generation, so I mean, the Chargers have been part of our family for since I was born. So I hope not because I'm a season ticket holder, but I would love to come back here and uh, every year and support my Chargers fans. But you think they're gone? I think they're out of here. Yeah. That's- I hope not. San Diego deserves a football team, and they've been loyal to their to their team for a long time. Now it's it's time for the Chargers themselves to be loyal to their fans. I personally think we're going to get a deal done uh, within the next year. I don't think we're going to L.A. I, I think I have a good chance that Dean Smith is going to do the right thing. What if the Chargers leave? Would you take the Raiders in San Diego? <laughs> no! No, no. And one other note on the stadium front, the NHL is launching a traveling exhibit that will make stops at arenas across the league this winter. The NHL Centennial Fan Arena honors a century's worth of extraordinary players, teams, remarkable plays, and unforgettable hockey moments. The 53-foot museum truck includes a virtual reality experience, allowing fans to take a seat and clean the ice from a Zamboni. That's pretty cool. Bill, that's the very latest. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. 
anyone who has driven around the city of Chicago through the years has heard the voice that you are about to hear, the voice of Mike North. And Mike is a uh, an always opinionated but always interesting talk show legend, I think we can say safely around here, with more than 25 years at it. And he probably has one of the more unusual backgrounds for getting into this than anyone in the profession. He's worked in radio, television, print. He has won several awards, two Emmys, currently a top handicapper for VegasScoresAndOdds.com. He also hosts a daily podcast, which is becoming a must-listen, called Sticks and Stones. And you can read him in the Daily Herald, where he writes several columns each week. And if you want to keep up on Twitter, at North to North. It is great to visit with you, and I I know you're a guy. If anybody knows the inside of ballparks, I think you're the guy who knows it. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on. You know, I I love the show. I love the topic. And, yeah, I'm glad you get winded uh, talking about the stuff that I've been very fortunate enough to do and very blessed to do. So I really enjoy ballparks. I worked at ballparks. I played in ballparks. Uh, I've been in many ballparks, and uh, when when my wife, Phoebe, got your uh, your your note, uh, you know, uh, she said, you know what, this would, might be up your alley. Now, we get plenty of emails and we get plenty of stuff people want me to do. They know my Twitter handle's at about 180,000. Oh. Hey, look, I understand, you know, you go where the action is. But then when I saw this about, you know, doing stadiums, that's right up my alley. Well, and it's been up your alley for a long time, even before you got into the broadcast profession. When I say viewing it from the inside and out, I mean a guy who's literally grown up in places like Wrigley Field and mm-hmm. the the old Comiskey Park. Let's talk about those. You served as a vendor in your youth long mm-hmm. before actually getting into the profession. How do those ballparks feel to you? What do you like about the essence of Wrigley Field, the old Comiskey Park, and the new Comiskey Park? Uh, how does well, that size up to you? My dad came home one day and he says, hey, guess what? I got you a pretty good gig, I think, because I was looking for a job and I was 16 years old. And I said, oh, he goes, well, you know, I talked to George Jensen, who's a union guy. He knows the secretary of George Alice. I might be able to get you a vendor's job. Hmm. Would you like to be a vendor? I go, yeah, I'd love to be a vendor. So one thing leads to another. My dad arranges it. I get the gig, and I go and I report to uh, Wrigley Field um, during the summer. I'm 16 years old, and at that time, everybody got, you know, every day they handed out uniforms. Now these guys got permanent uniforms, ID badges, and everything else. You'd show up. you go, hi, Luke, how you doing? You'd sign in. There'd be rows of blue uniforms, and then they'd hand out what they thought your size was. So you never took your own uniform home. Plus, it was archaic. There was a small vendor's room. It's Wrigley Field. It's Wrigley Field. I mean, it's, it's the same way then as it was now, with a few additions, of course, and now they're remodeling the whole darn place. I, I did the stuff, and I sold Cokes for uh, 25 cents. And if you remember, they were in cups, but they weren't with cups that had the, the good plastic tops. They were plastic. They were like heated tops that went across. And they'd get loose and stuff, so you'd get a, a good cake. You'd get your pants wet and everything else. But for every case of Coke I sold, and especially during 69 with the Cubs going crazy, and 70 and 71, I made a bucket case. I must have sold 30, 35 cases in a doubleheader. Make 35 bucks as a kid after tax. I mean, then you have tax and stuff. It was a beautiful thing. And the same thing went for Comiskey Park. But I didn't 
go there as much because it was dangerous back then. You took the L, and we had had uh, rioting in 68, you know, during the Martin Luther King, John F., uh, the Robert Kennedy assassination, stuff like that. So going to Comiskey Park back then, where the L was four, uh, about four blocks away, not like now if you go, where the L lets you right off on the Dan Ryan and 35th, right across the street. It was a little bit tougher, but believe me when I tell you this, as a summer job, I had one of the greatest summer jobs of all time. The only guy who had a better job than me in the summer where I worked at Wrigley Field at Comiskey Park with my buddy Dennis Conley, who happened to get the bad boy job for the Chicago Cubs back in the day. <laughs> that is a good job. Do you have a particular stadium outside of Chicago that you really enjoyed visiting and why? Camden Yards, mm. without a doubt. We went to Baltimore just to hang out. This was back in the 90s, and I had a field pass. And the stadium it was like about a year or two old. It was just a beautiful stadium. I think they did it right from the beginning. They incorporated the warehouse across the street in right field. You walk literally the hotels. There's three, four hotels literally a half a block away. The Inner Harbor is right there. I know Baltimore's had their share of problems, but in the stadium vicinity, I think it's a great, great experience, and I saw Boog Powell, Boog Barbecue. Then I met Peter Angelos, and Peter Angelos, back in the day, invited me up, um, me and my wife, to sit in his booth with him, and we watched the ball game, and it was just opening. And then uh, the Orioles hit the skids a little bit, and then they started losing the crowd. No matter what the appeal of the stadium is, sooner or later you got to win, as we're seeing in Chicago with the White Sox, as you saw in Baltimore before they hit the resurgence, as you saw in Pittsburgh, which mm-hmm. is another nice stadium that I haven't been in. It's amazing how the stadiums have become such a fabric now in baseball, and that's why this is a great show. Well, Mike, it is great to visit with you. Congratulations on everything you're doing. Have a good holiday, and let's just remind everybody where they can check you out, and I think the website right. is the place to go, North to North, North to North. And if you want to tweet me, if you want to tweet me, North to North, N-O-R-T-H, number two, N-O-R-T-H, and I want to give you a lot of credit for this show and for what your, your love of stadiums and stuff like that because, uh, I mean, it's really cool. I mean, stadiums are cool. The thing about baseball is every stadium is different. Thank you, Mike North, our guest. And we'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. He is the president-elect. But he has a very interesting and fascinating background, including time in professional sports. Many years ago, 
a pro football owner, not in the NFL, but in a rival league called the United States Football League. He owned the New Jersey Generals franchise, which was one of the key franchises in the league. We're going to talk about that and visit with a guy and a good friend who knows the United States Football League. He has a fascination not only for that league, but for a number of them. It's great to visit with our friend Paul Reeths from Wisconsin. Paul, as always, a joy and a pleasure. Let me start by asking you, how did you develop a fascination? And I know you've had this fascination for many years with leagues like the USFL and specifically the USFL. Uh, Great to hear from you again, too, Bill. You know, the USFL is really the league that launched my interest in alternative leagues. When I was a young man when the USFL uh, was hitting the field. And for me, it was such a blessing for uh, this young football fan to have high-quality professional football throughout the year. You had a USFL season that started literally right after the Super Bowl finished and wrapped up just before NFL training camps. So it created this environment of high-quality, year-round professional football. It was really kind of this dream situation for three years where I could watch pro football year-round. One of the excellent aspects of the United States Football League was that they did play in some superb stadium venues. Tell us about some of those stadiums. That's a beat, after all, that we cover very closely. And uh, give us an idea how the USFL stacked up in terms of the stadiums in which they played. One of the most interesting aspects, I think, of the USFL, and especially of the USFL's formation, was the fight that they had to get into stadiums. Uh, The USFL played in major league facilities. Uh, They played in the Silverdome. Uh, They played in the LA Coliseum, uh, the Astrodome in Houston, uh, Soldier Field in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in all of those cases, they had to fight to get into the stadiums. Uh, Either the local stadium authority didn't want them in there in some cases because of pressure from an NFL team. That was one of the main reasons why the USFL actually had to launch a year after it had initially planned. It was initially planned to launch in 1982 and had to hold off until 1983 because of those stadium battles. Paul, the USFL was a league which had kind of a core issue that perhaps no other league has faced, and that's determining when to play. And there were two schools of thought on it. Originally, it was kind of thought that football would work in the spring, and so they started there, but they kind of struggled with that all the way along. What's the story behind that? The spring always came with reduced expectations. Uh, Spring was a time when people wanted to get outside. You see television ratings go down during the spring, and that was especially the case 30-plus years ago. Uh, So it always came with reduced expectation. The founder of the USFL, David Dixon, really projected the USFL to settle around a 25,000 attendance figure. Uh, Television networks had their own target rating point, which was much lower than NFL ratings. They knew that it was an unknown product playing at a different time of the year, but also we're in when audience would be just fragmented by various spring and summer activities. Once the USFL's costs started to rise, 
the attendance and the television ratings that were available in the spring were no longer enough to sustain what the USFL had become. And so you had this this incredible debate that developed of do we stay in the spring, do we try to continue to develop, or do we move to the fall where we know there's a lot more money available because the NFL is earning it. Tell us a little bit about the unique signature of this league and what it brought into football, some unique aspects of it, Paul, which fans have perhaps not seen before or since in the game. Uh, The USFL, to me, brought about so much uh, of the innovation, and a lot of it was on the field. A lot of it you saw in the run-and-shoot offense of the Houston Gamblers and and then the Denver Gold as well in that a lot of the the passing and the, the read option passing came out of the USFL. The USFL employed the two-point conversion. It was the first to use a, an instant replay system. Uh, the USFL had such a varied style of play. Instead of 32 teams running some version of a West Coast offense, you had a smash mouth team like uh, the Philadelphia and, and then Baltimore Stars or the Birmingham Stallions, where they would run the football first and play defense, right up to a Houston Gamblers team that would just try to flat out outscore everyone. So you had such variation in the league, which was so much fun. And then, of course, you had the players, uh, which really is kind of the lasting legacy of this league. You had Hall of Famers, uh, Jim Kelly, Steve Young, Reggie White, three straight Heisman Trophy winners. Hmm. A host of guys who would go on to Pro Bowls and All-Pro NFL seasons. It, it really was kind of alternative major league that we have not seen since in 30-plus years. Paul, what about Donald Trump's legacy with the league? Um, tell us that story, if you will. So the USFL, as I mentioned before, came to a crossroads in that it was losing a lot of money. And it was losing a lot of money primarily because player costs had skyrocketed. The USFL was competing for players and the NFL was pushing back. And so you saw this upward push on all player salaries. The NFL was in a far better position to to sustain uh, that increase than the USFL was. So the USFL had to make a decision. Do we stay in the spring and continue to lose boatloads of money? Or do we move to the fall? and hope that we can get a television partner to buy into this and tap into this great revenue stream that the NFL kind of has, or possibly merge with the NFL, put enough financial pressure on them where it forces a merger. And that was really Donald Trump's strategy, is to move to the fall, continue this upward push on player costs, and and get merged into the NFL. He'd essentially get an NFL franchise on the cheap. It didn't work, of course. So uh, the USFL ended up uh, folding. They pushed a billion-dollar antitrust suit against uh, the NFL, which the the USFL won, but won $1 in damages plus court costs. Uh, So Trump's strategy in the end failed. Absolutely, he is due the criticism that has been given him uh, for that failed strategy. But I think the question that maybe hasn't been asked often enough is, is there really a strategy that would have worked? 
Paul, thanks so much for sharing some time with us, uh, talking about uh, not only the great teams of the USFL, but the great stadiums in which they played. And in some ways, it's almost a who's who's list of some of the great stadiums in America. So, Paul, a pleasure. We wish you well. Same here, Bill. Always great to talk with you. A pleasure. Paul Reeths is our guest. Coming up, we will break down the weekend stadium news. Mark Madoran standing by. He'll step to the plate next, right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Time now for a holiday edition of Talking Shop. Don't run away. We're going to examine this week's stadium headlines. For that, we welcome in Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And if you don't already know, Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information. You can listen to the podcast of our program right at the site, test your stadium knowledge like they do every week with me and usually I end up losing on that you can do the same thing that I do every <laughs> week at stadiumsusa.com Mark here we go we're right in the college football bowl season good time to look into what we often refer to as the in-game bowl experience from a fan's perspective and I understand you've been doing a little further first-hand research on this topic with a recent visit to the Auto Nation Cure Bowl. How'd you like it? Oh, I was a fan, and I was very happy. It was a wonderful facility. Uh, the game wasn't quite as close as I probably would have hoped, but as you remember, this was the old Citrus Bowl, now called Camping World Stadium, mm-hmm. and they did a complete rebuild on this. Remember, they saved the upper deck, which was really very nice, and they, they really tore down everything below the upper deck and started all over. I think anybody that goes to a bowl game there is going to have a great time. And obviously, it's going to be a popular facility because there are three bowl games there in the space of two weeks. Yeah. The Auto Nation Cure Bowl was the first one. And then the 28th uh, is the Russell Athletic Bowl. And then the 31st is the traditional Citrus Bowl, now called the Buffalo Wild Wings Citrus Bowl. So they're going to get a lot of play there. And then, as you remember, the NFL decided to move the Pro Bowl there for uh, next year. So that stadium's going to get plenty of use, and the fans are going to love it. Mark, let's dig into ice hockey. And there is one necessity if you are going to play hockey. You must have ice. This was proven to be true in North Carolina for the game between the Carolina Hurricanes and the Detroit Red Wings. What happened? Why well, I think they forgot to pack their roller skates. <laughs> Unfortunately, they went there for the game, and there was no ice. Cooling system problems at the PNC Arena forced them to cancel the game. In late August, they did some repairs on the cooling system, which included 
a recharge of the refrigerant. Get this, Bill. They recharge the R22 refrigerant, 1,250 pounds, mm-hmm. cost $34,000. Yikes. The repair bill to fix the cooling system was $81,000. Unfortunately, what happened was a seal broke on one of the compressors that operates with the main chiller, and that wasn't included in the previous repairs. And they lost enough Freon that the ice temperature uh, started to rise, and it made the ice real soft and unplayable. And they thought they could get it fixed in time, but they just couldn't put it together. So Mm -hmm. they had to halt everything and reschedule this game. Let's go ahead and hop in the Wayback Machine, Mark. We have some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. What do you have? This is a holiday edition now, Mark, so I assume you've dug out some special stuff for us. What do you have here? (laughs) (laughs) I have one you'll like, Bill. Uh. This week, 1966, the NBA awards an expansion franchise to the city of Seattle. The Supersonics would begin play in 67 at the Seattle Center Coliseum. I'll bet you have some fond memories of the Seattle Center Coliseum. I do, but not from doing a broadcast in there. We now know that, of course, is Key Arena. It's had several names through the years. That arena was simply built too small. They're talking about trying to renovate it for, what, the third time here, a major renovation. During the time that I was last there, this goes back a few years, the Sonics were playing in the Kingdom, and they were drawing huge crowds, Mark. It was not unusual to see 35,000 a night. That's a great crowd. Uh, Here is another one for you. In 1995, baseball San Francisco Giants announced plans for a new stadium AT&T Park would open in the year 2000. Before we get out of here, it's time for the stadium trivia. And you'll like this one this week. Along with uh, everyone else, you get a chance to answer a stadium trivia question as found on our Stadiums USA website. 1960, John F. Kennedy made his memorable acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention at a famous iconic sports venue which sports venue did Kennedy make his speech at? Okay. Was it Soldier Field in Chicago? Was it Madison Square Garden in New York? Was it the L.A. Memorial Coliseum? Or was it Yankee Stadium? Ladies and gentlemen, please note that there are two ringers in here. Uh, this is an attempt to steer me to say it was one of the two New York places, Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium. They're both out because they didn't hold the convention there. They did not hold it in Chicago either. So the only place left is Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. And that is correct. Uh, it is Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Mark, as always, good to see you. Good to talk with you. Have a very Merry Christmas, and let's get together before the New Year. Same to all of our listeners. Merry Christmas to all, and the same to you, Bill. Have a great holiday. Thank you, Mark. Coming up, it's known as the Cathedral of College Basketball. Where is it? Philadelphia. The iconic palestra. We'll talk about it next on SB Nation Radio. I noticed a wonderful plaque in a video that I watched recently. It is attached to the Palestra, one of the great arenas in sports. And it says the following, to win the game is great, 
to play the game is greater, to love the game is the greatest of all. That is the essence of the Palestra. We're going to talk about that building now. We've asked Steve Bilski, the uh, longtime athletic director at Penn, now retired after a great tour of duty, to come aboard and visit with us. He served as athletic director at Penn for two decades, and if anybody knows this building pretty well, I think Steve is among an elite group that really knows it well because the Palestra serves as the home court for the Penn Quakers. Steve, I know this will be a lot of fun, a labor of love to talk about this place. Reflect back on all the years and what the Palestra has meant to you. Well, I grew up in New York, and at that time, the Madison Square Garden was really the capital of basketball, both pro and college, at least from my perspective. This is the late 60s, so you know we didn't have the visibility of television that we have today. And I was recruited by Penn, and I made a visit, and I went to a, attended a doubleheader back then. All of the teams in Philadelphia played their games in the cluster. And I came back afterwards and said, I've, I've made my decision where I'm going to play. I've never seen anything like it. And that was my first experience, and you know I've had decades' experience since then, and really and truly, I've never seen an atmosphere for a college basketball game that rivals the Plaster. There are other great arenas, but I'm biased, but I don't think any are better than the Plaster. I can say with absolute definitive certainty that there is no place in America where the fans are closer to the action. Literally, the stands go right up to the court. So if you're trying to fish a ball out somewhere, you're going into the stands. Do I have that right? You do. And, and one, one of the great things about it is, again, when during the heyday of what's called the Big Five, which is you know the, the five major college basketball programs in the Philadelphia playing the Plaster, and people who had the privilege of, of sitting in the front row actually were so close to the players passing the ball in bounds that often they would engage in conversation. It was part of the uniqueness of it. And, you know, the players got to know the fans who sat there and vice versa. So, you know, I don't think you, you saw that anywhere else, but it was part of the atmosphere uh, that made it so great. You know, the building itself is a tremendous architectural statement when you consider that it did go online, as you say, in 1927, and it was built quickly. The way it was designed, that arena has no obstructed seats, a phenomenal accomplishment for the age in which it was built. How did they get so much right well, it was, again, at the time, it, it's a remarkable looking back that something, a structure like that could be built in such a short period of time. But I think back then, uh, it was just beginning the thought that sports in general, and not just college sports, were reaching the interest of fans that you needed to start building arenas bigger than what had existed at that point. And, you know, what some people don't know about it is, is, is the Plusher became kind of the icon of arenas back there, and, uh, you know, one that's, that's very popular and, of course, well-known is the success of Duke is Cameron Indoor, and it was done by the same architect. And the the structure and the sight lines, and if you walked into the Plaster and then you walked into Cameron, you would see you know they're almost identical buildings. I think one of the great things about it is that every one of the Big Five schools that have played there, there's a part in the hallway area that is dedicated to them, to each one of those schools. I think it's a great, great idea. Steve, speak to that. What was done to the building to freshen it up and to make sure that it is a very viable facility for generations to come? Right. So in the probably with the late 1990s, the building was beginning to show its wear a little bit. And 
uh, you know, we decided that, you know, we needed to freshen up, especially the concourses. And rather than just paint it and fix it up, like, which would be the normal thing, we decided to make a kind of a museum to Philadelphia basketball. So there's four, obviously, wings to the building, uh, and each wing is dedicated to some part of the element of the history of the plaza. So one week, obviously, one wing was dedicated to Penn being the home school. Another wing was uh, dedicated to the, all the big five schools, Villanova, Temple, St. Joseph's, and LaSalle shared the big five history. One wing uh, was the, some of the greatest players and coaches, you know, that have played or coached in the Plessier, which is wonderful uh, to see as, you know, you see today when people walk around and you always see the, the dad showing the, the little kids pictures of a young Bobby Knight coaching an army or, you know, Mike Krzyzewski or some of the great legends of uh, Adolf Rupp, all coached games for their schools at the cluster. And so their pictures and images are up on the wall. The young Rick Pitino, I mean, I can go on and on and all the greats have coached there. And then also there's parts of, you know, some of the great players who have played there. You know, probably the three names that, you know, would be most recognizable are uh, Will Chamberlain, uh, Kobe Bryant and LeBron James played in the uh, in the plaster. So, uh, you know, rather than just kind of painting and freshening up, we made it in kind of a museum, and people love it. And you know, you'll see before a game, uh, you know, people will get there and walk around and just you know, looking at the pictures and reading some of the stories that took place. You know, one that that's most famous is there was a game in the in the 1960s, and there was a bomb scare. Uh, and the legendary announcer Les Kider was doing the games at that at that point, and he refused to leave. And so, you know, you had this audio tape going back to the studio where they're saying, you got to get out of there. And he's saying, I'm not leaving. Um, and so wow. we did a little feature on some of the kind of unique non-basketball histories there. You know, there have been presidents who have spoken in the plot. So there have been concerts from uh, uh, Simon Garfunkel, the Jefferson Airplane have all played there. So, you know, if you walk around the, the, the concourses, you'll see pictures of those events actually happening. And I think that's, that I'm really proud that we did that, and again, I don't, I don't know of any place that's ever really accomplished something like that. Well, Steve, it's wonderful to visit with you. What a great story to tell, and I think it's great for you to take us inside and tell us about this wonderful, wonderful place, and we suggest to anybody, if you're in the Philadelphia area, anywhere on the Eastern Corridor, that's a must-stop. Try to take in a game. You'll never forget it. Steve Bilski, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the visit. A real pleasure. Steve Bilski is our guest, the Athletic Director at Penn, and that's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.